When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. In today's episode, we look back to a visit to the Institute by the great intellectual historian Eric Hobsbawm. Hobsbawm's talk, titled Inventing Your Own History, was recorded in October 1995. In this presentation, Hobsbawm describes the new challenges to how history is told in the post-Cold War world. Uh, We're very fortunate today to have Eric Hobsbawm, a celebrated and brilliant historian NYU enjoys intermittently when he is a professor here, and whom we enjoy intermittently when he is a fellow, uh, most famous perhaps for his uh, three-volume book on what he called the long 19th century, the age of revolution, the age of capital, and the age of empire, and now comes with his prize-winning book, The Age of Extremes, the short 20th century. He has also written a most influential book called the invention of tradition, and so it's not a surprise if he is going to speak to us today about inventing your own history. Eric Hobsbawm. Well, before I start, let me ask you to drink to a very rare fact, namely that today the Nobel Peace Prize has been announced, and for the one of the rare times, it's actually given to somebody who's major merits are to have fought for peace for many years, <laughs> namely Joseph Rotblatt, the nuclear scientist, you may remember, who actually resigned from the nuclear program during World War II, and uh, the Pugwash thing. I think the Institute of Humanities ought at least to take note of this collectively. <laughs> you may remember the phrase which was copied from Francis Bacon's essays in one of Aldous Huxley's early works. What is truth, suggesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer? The object of my rather old-fashioned, possibly even positivist observations this lunchtime is that we can't afford to take the Pilate view about truth. When I say we, I mean in my trade, historians. It is vitally important to distinguish between what is true and what isn't and in fact it is important at least to establish that we ought to try. Let me start with a recent experience which I had, we were making a film for BBC Two, in a city with three names, Pressburg, Bratislava and Pozsony. It used to be the capital of Hungary when the Turks occupied Budapest and for some time after. It lies on the Danube, less than a mile from the border with Austria and within commuting distance from Vienna. When the old Habsburg monarchy collapsed, it became part of the new Czechoslovak Republic and the chief city of its Slovak component. After 1939, it became the capital of a Slovak state, which was a satellite of Nazi Germany, and incidentally lost some of its suburbs 
to what was then Greater Germany, although it's once again the edge of Austria. It got the suburbs back. Until 1939, it used to be, like so many biggie cities in Central Europe, a cosmopolitan place which conducted its business mostly in German, perhaps with a touch of Yiddish, since it also had a large Jewish population. There are still a lot of people around called Pressburger. I don't have to tell you that the Jews have since been killed or gone to the US mm. and Israel, and the Germans have been expelled. Official business was conducted in Hungarian until they stopped being in Hungary, and the Magyar officials were replaced by Czech ones. The unofficial Hungarians, mostly from the surrounding farming population, are still there, but not regarded as fully human by the Slovak nationalist government, which is now in command. The Slovaks, whose profile was extremely low under the Habsburgs and subordinate to the Czechs after 1918, have taken over the city. It is now inhabited by immigrants from the remoter regions of agrarian Slovakia. It's rather as if Boston had been emptied of its old inhabitants and refilled with immigrants from the Quebec hinterland. The survivors of the old city, so one of them told me, called them Bratislavaks, and they called themselves Presburaks. I don't have to tell you that a place like that has a complicated history. It is illustrated by the fortunes of the statues on the so-called Royal Mound, which is a small square by the Danube, where the kings of Hungary used to show themselves after their coronation, which took place in that city. I tell you about it, not for its own sake, but because it illustrates the difference between professional historians and those who use the stuff we produce. At the end of the 19th century, the Hungarian government decided to celebrate a great hypothetical anniversary, the thousand years since the wild and nomadic Magyar horsemen had first established themselves in the Hungarian plain. Readers of Terry Rangers and my own invention of tradition will remember that this was a period when traditions of this kind were invented in lots of countries. On the other hand, for reasons which need not concern us, it was also felt suitable to make a gesture to Vienna by putting up a statue to the Empress Maria Theresa, who in another capacity was Queen of Hungary on the Royal Mound. In 1740, the young queen, her baby, the future Joseph II, patron of Mozart in her arms, had come to the Hungarian assembly in Presburg, Pozhon, nobody yet called it Bratislava, to plead for the support of the Hungarian magnates against Frederick the Great of Prussia, who had just seized the Habsburg territory of Silesia. The school books say that the Hungarian magnates were deeply moved and rose as one man to help her. This did not actually get Silesia back, but guaranteed Hungarian autonomy from Vienna because the queen now owed them one. No doubt there was a political moral here which the Hungarian <coughs> government at the end of the 19th century wanted to recall. The statue stayed there until after the monarchy ended in 1918. A couple of years later, a mob of ultra-nationalist Czech legionaries, the ones who had risen against the Bolsheviks in Russia, thus starting the Russian Civil War, were outraged by this symbolic survival of the old regime. They tore the statue down. 
But since uh, the Czechs are a hard-headed and practical people, they didn't waste the good marble. Most of it was recycled to make a statue of Palatsky, an eminent historian and great figure in the Czech, in the Czech national movement. Some was turned into tourist souvenirs. Palatsky is still said to be around somewhere. Instead, a great column was put up with a Czech lion and the Czech coat of arms at the top, proudly looking across the Danube. Slovak feelings were conciliated by putting a statue of a certain Stefanik at the bottom of the column, a Slovak hero of the Czechoslovak fight for freedom, not otherwise much heard of. Then came Munich and the German occupation of Czechia in 1939, which implied autonomy and eventually a nominal independence for Slovakia. The column came down, officially because Hitler, who had annexed the suburbs across the Danube to Greater Germany, couldn't bear to be overlooked by a Czech animal, more likely because the Slovak nationalists didn't want to be overlooked. Stefanik stayed, but without the column, and without the lion, and without the Czech coat of arms, until sometime in the middle 50s, when the communist regime removed him, presumably worried about the excessive Slovak nationalist feelings. There was nothing on the mound, until after the Russians invaded in 1968. After that, the communist regime felt the need to conciliate the Slovaks, who had, after all, provided the leaders of the Prague Spring. So Czechoslovakia was divided in 1971 into a Czech and a Slovak Socialist Republic. The time for another statue had come. <laughs> but who? The government picked on Ludovic Stur, the 19th century inventor of what proved to be the successful version of the Slovak literary language. This one didn't need to be changed in 1989. Stur is still there, looking over the Danube in front of a semi-abstract stone construction. Michelangelo, it isn't. <laughs> now, here's the point. Everyone concerned with putting up and dismantling these statues over the past century was using history, ranging from the most ancient to the contemporary. All of them treated history essentially as the raw material for their own political or ideological manipulations. The constructors of the interwar column were not really worried by the fact that the Stefanik, to whom this rather large monument was dedicated, was not much more significant in the story of his country than, let's say, John Birch in the history of the United States. <laughs> he became significant because they chose him as a symbol. The fact that both the subject and the material of these monuments could be destroyed replaced and recycled is typical. But at the same time, all of them regarded history as the indispensable raw material for the manipulation. This is highly characteristic of nations and nationalism, which exists by pretending that historically novel phenomena uh, have been there unchanged since the beginning of time. But it's also true of other forms of politics, especially identity politics. Of all these, it is true, as Ernest Renan said in 1882, that, I quote him, forgetting history, even getting it wrong, is an essential factor in the formation of a nation. In fact, all human beings, collectivities and institutions need a past and provide themselves with a suitable one. Unfortunately, 
the one the historical profession produces is not often the ones they want. <laughs> so we historians coexist uneasily with everyone else. Uh, they need us, but they need not our facts, but our fictions. But in spite of the relativists and postmodernists, distinguishing between fact and fiction, or what is based on evidence and what isn't, is as essential to historians as it is to judges and juries in murder trials. The distinction may appear pedantic and trivial to non-historians who use history for their own purposes, just as it appears to be quite trivial to people who watch Macbeth to ask whether the wife of the Thane of Cawdor actually pushed her husband to kill King Duncan somewhere around 1040 AD. But for people in the trade, like myself, it is uh, not unimportant. It is essential. My uncle, who once had to do publicity for the Polish release of the movie Frankenstein, <laughs> and I'm talking about the early 1930s, thought it was a good idea, given the nature of the Polish movie market, which was urban and therefore largely Jewish, to start a rumor that Boris Karloff was really called Boruch Karloff. <laughs> As his surviving historical nephew, I am nevertheless obliged to treat this as a statement about my uncle or about the movie industry in the early 20th century Central Europe, but not about an actor of impeccable British middle-class provenance whose name was Pratt, whose brother was a British diplomat, and it's no use telling me that it doesn't matter. <laughs> you see, and this is the point of my observations, today people like myself are constantly told it doesn't matter by people who refuse to make a distinction between fact and feeling, in short, between what is true and what they feel to be true or convenient or comforting, by what is subject to the control of evidence, probability and logical coherence and what isn't. But it really does matter, as the O.J. Simpson trial proves. O.J. Simpson was acquitted because a postmodern trial strategy triumphed over an old-fashioned positivist trial strategy. <laughs> Instead of saying, we are here to try this particular accused and to discover whether, by the standards of evidence, uh, there is a reasonable doubt that he did it, People said it doesn't really matter, we better try something completely different, which of course may in its own way be a perfectly valid thing to do, but it isn't relevant to this particular trial at this particular time. So how do we make up our, the history which is suitable to our feelings or to our political purposes? Nowadays it's not so easy actually to lie or to make up false data as it was in the days when one could fake medieval documents or write an invented ancient Gaelic epic, like Ossian, you see. To this extent, we scholars have restricted the scope of historic invention. Even the church has had to accept the carbon dating of the Turin Shroud. Still, there, there are parts of the world where you can get, still get away with lies. Hindu nationalism only recently based a murderous anti-Muslim campaign on baseless historical assertions about uh, what had happened to a particular mosque or what the original 
uh, that city being the birthplace of a local god. And when people said, very well, there is no documentary, even legal evidence for this, they said this is not an issue which can be judged by the courts. However, on the whole, the most currently effective way of making up your own history is not actually lying, but anachronism, or reshaping the past to fit in with the present. I'll only cite one currently explosive example, namely Macedonia. Here, peace and war in the Balkans depend on arguments purportedly about Alexander the Great, by which the Greeks want to safeguard their claim to the greater part of Macedonia, which they took over from the Turkish Bulgarians and Macedonian rebels, and potentially from Albanians, in 1912 and 1913. It's actually about the after-effects of the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 13. The Greeks prefer phony history because the more usual arguments about real or phony linguistics and ethnics don't favour them. Now, as you know, Greece has refused Macedonia even the right to its name and flag and waged a trade war against that state, which for some time had no other defender than George Soros, on the grounds that Alexander's heritage is a Greek national monopoly. Alexander is a lineal ancestor of the modern Greek national state and Papandreou. This is a bit like the British government blockading France until it changed its name of the region of Normandy on the ground that calling it Normandy might throw doubt on the legitimacy of the Norman conquest of England in 1066. It's easy enough to make fun of this in New York, but believe me, in Greece today it takes very considerable courage to say that the Greek case against Macedonia is historic nonsense. It takes real courage and there are a large number of people, including among intellectuals, who don't quite nerve themselves to do this. And as an attack on the Macedonian premier by presumably the second oldest terrorist movement in Europe demonstrates, negotiating about the allegedly historical symbol on the flag is not seen as a purely diplomatic operation at least not by the venerable internal Macedonian revolutionary organization, which presumably conducted this attack. By the way, the oldest of the terrorist movements is the IRA, which is a lineal descendant of the IRB, and which is also a well-known maker-up of history for its own purposes. But where even anachronism fails, there is one last resort. The relativist and postmodernist theories, which have become fashionable among my colleagues and their students, fudge the distinction between reality and invention because, if I may cite ethnographer, discourse is the maker of the world, not the mirror. It's argued that there's no way of getting outside it. No narrative among the many possible ones can be regarded as privileged, i.e. preferable on objective ground. But if there is no way of deciding between them on objective grounds, then anyone's construction of reality is as good as anyone else's, because all are equally constructions. It's not surprising that this view has appealed particularly to those academics who see themselves as representing groupings or collectivities marginalized by the hegemonic culture of some group whose claim to superiority they contest. 
However, I would bet that very few, even theoretical relativists in New York, will fail to apply positivist criteria when it comes to distinguishing a historical construction which denies that the Holocaust took place from one which does not. The problem with relativism is that history ceases to be a form of intellectual communication since it abandons a single university of discourse. That's to say, once this is divided into non-communicating containers of identity history designed for Croats or Hasidim or proletarians or homosexuals, or if I were to join this group, we were to define ourselves as an identity group of left-handed people. Systems of discourse which are not fully or not at all understandable by anybody else except Croats or Hasidim or left-handed people. Universalism is the necessary condition of rational discourse in history as in anything else. Once we abandon it, we produce not only absurdity, such as used to flourish in the official Turkish historiography, which was in the, between the wars committed to claiming that civilization originated with the Turkish tribes in Central Asia, and which still flourishes in the wilder shores of Afrocentric history, but we produce real danger. Since the early 1980s, an important trend among German historians has called for a return to the sort of history which is concerned not, as it were, with understanding the world as a whole, of which Germany is a part, but above all with the German nation and its mission or manifest <coughs> destiny, which is therefore not entirely comprehensible or on the same wavelengths as anybody else. We know that this sort of collective historical egocentricity, where this can lead, it is by no means confined to German. And the moral of my story is that bad history is not necessarily harmless history. The sentences typed onto apparently harmless keyboards have in our century quite often turned out to be sentences of death. And so I end up with a return to Ernest Renan's famous phrase about getting history wrong, he ends up by saying, if this is so, c'est ainsi que le progrès des études historiques est souvent pour la nationalité un danger. That's why the progress of historical studies is often a danger to these kinds of ideologies. I hope that we historians can live up to our calling to be a public danger in this sense. <laughs>